Hi, welcome to the Brown Note James Bond special. You're with Julian on Radio Northern Beaches on 88.7 and 90.3 FM, rmb.org.au. Uh, the long-threatened James Bond special inspired by an Australian TV network showing all James Bond films in a row, night after night for the last 21 nights. They didn't make, make the end. They didn't show any of the Daniel Craig ones. So this is the stupidest and most sloppily planned show in history. Over the course of the next two hours, I shall be rating everything, every single James Bond film in order of greatness, from worst to best. The top 10 best and five worst villains, and top 10 best and worst Bond Girls, R.I.P. Honor Blackman, one of the most famous of all, died today, age 94. She was one of the original Avengers with, I think, Patrick McNee, and then went on to become the immortal pussy galore in Goldfinger. And it was great to watch all these Bond films I'd seen on TV when I was a kid. And many of them I hadn't watched since in a row. So you got perspective on what each film meant in the progression. And I was just got sucked into reading about them and the production of them and what each one was trying to do and how it was responding to the reception of the last one. And it was just this fascinating universe. And obviously it's a bit a geek's world like Doctor Who or something. So it's, it's extremely rateable as many people have wildly divergent opinions on James Bond and all of it was to lead up to No Time to Die an unfortunately generic new Bond film on the horizon again starring Daniel Craig tragically wedded to an anemic Billie Eilish the most obvious and boring choice you could possibly have theme tune but it's been postponed due to the virus, so um, <laughs> that went out the window. So it's going to be an amazing achievement if I'm actually playing the last song, because I'm also, I didn't mention, counting down the top 15 Bond theme tunes as the music for the show. So if I'm actually playing the last song, approaching the two-hour mark, I am going to be in hog heaven. How it's going to play out over the course of the show, I don't know. I guess I'll review them in batches. We don't need no stinking batches. And I'll start with my 15th. I'm counting down the top 15 Bond theme tunes as well. And the opening sort of five or so aren't great. And I've missed off uh, many of the worst ones. But once you get into the top 10, it does actually pick up and they are some pretty great songs. And the one thing that's really relatable for the purpose of comparison is Bond films have this almost unique cohesion to them in that they, they broadly have uh, a Bond opening sequence followed by a big name artist doing the theme song and over naked women floating around in space. Um, they usually have a Bond girl, which I'll talk about later. Um, in fact, I think every single film has had a Bond girl. And they operate in a very wide range. And I'll talk about that when I come to doing the uh, best and worst. 
They usually have a one villain. They usually have a car. And they have all these elements that are, are rateable from picture to picture. So we'll start with this rather bland number from uh, an era. I one, one thing I'm not going to do is rate the Bonds um, because it's pointless. It's just, I mean, how do you do it? Do you pick the best film from Sean Connery's or Roger Moore's career? Do you, do you like take an average and then put it up against the one film that was done by... Um, I can't remember the Australian guy's name. That was an amazing start. The one film that was done by George Lazenby. It just doesn't work, does it? Two by Timothy Dalton. It doesn't really lend itself. But everything else does. Everything else is comparable. So from the Bronson, Pierce Brosnan 90s era, which is not my favourite at all, um, I found it a bit lacklustre. Uh, Cheryl Crow at number 15, the first... And one of the only ones that's like one thing I really like about Bond theme tunes is they're all under about three minutes thirty. They're all between two thirty and three minutes thirty in length, and some of them sound pretty huge. But this one clocks off at nearly five minutes uh, and is quite dull. So you can imagine how boring and often bad many of the other ones were. I mean, they've won Oscars the last two Bond films, Skyfall and Spectre, and the Adele song was good and nearly made the list, and the um, unbelievably anemic song by Sam Smith who's possibly the world's blandest human being uh, is one of my least favourite but this is Cheryl Crow from a very bad Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies kicking off the Brown Note Bond special Uh, Cheryl Crow at number 15, you're with Julian on the Brown Oak on the Long Threatened Bond special. Counting down every Bond film in order and ranked and rated. Every, well, the top 15 theme tunes, that's at number 15, Tomorrow Never Dies. And also, uh, my favourite and least favourite Bond villains. Now, if you're wondering what the music that opened the show was a masterpiece um, but one thing I love about the Bond themes and the music is that they're broadly interchangeable with the iconic music that John Barry created and John Barry is one of the great and possibly next to someone like John Williams who's continually mentioned he's an astonishingly well-versed musician as far as film soundtracks go he's won Oscars and made several very, very prominent film soundtracks in the 90s. But all the way back to the 60s, they had Zulu on TV last night, and that was a John Barry theme tune. Well, not just theme tune, the score. And even when he's not involved, there's always um, the music in the background is moulded in some way to his original sort of Bond theme. He didn't write the Bond theme. That was a hugely controversial point but it's essentially his music. And this is a propeller head, so David Arnold uh, basically took over the baton from John Barry, and he made a lot of the Brosnan ones and the Daniel Craig ones up until, I think, Spectre. And David Arnold basically got the gig after making an album where he got a lot of disparate artists together to cover Bond themes. And this was the Propellerheads covering 
on, a mag on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is going to crop up later. The only instrumental Bond theme in the entire list. And they, they covered that uh, nine minutes long version of it, which is absolutely superb and the centerpiece of their Dex and Drums and Rock and Roll album, which also featured a brilliant track, History Repeating by Shirley Bassey, the undoubted Queen of Bond themes. So let's get this show on the road with the worst Bond film of all time. At number 25, the worst Bond film of all time, and I'm going to go up to 23 here because uh, they're all 4 out of 10s for me, which isn't good. And at number 25, it's the most recent Bond film, Spectre, the worst Bond film of all. And I think the reason it shades the other two is disappointment. The Daniel Craig era, even Quantum of Solace, which I've got a lot of time for, even though it's a misfire, there's a lot of compared to the Brosnan era, a lot more sort of immediacy and urgency to the human side of things. Things felt like they mattered. The quality of cinematography and direction was often really, really strong. And the stories themselves are often really strong as well. Uh, and it went from being um, a, a flatlining concern, which it's done a few times with the latter Brosnan films, into being centre stage in the public discourse as far as, you know, culture goes. It's alongside the likes of Fast and Furious and Mission Impossible and those kind of franchises where it's expecting to get up to, you know, the billion-dollar mark. And Spectre, for me, it, it falls down in a lot of areas. Daniel Craig came back and uh, he has never been less enthusiastic to be Bond um, the writer, I don't like the director Sam Mendes. I thought he lucked out with Skyfall, uh, an overrated Bond film, but uh, it is a good one. Um, this time around, I think, you know, Sam Mendes for me, he was the director of 1917 and he was the director of American Beauty, which is probably the most overrated now embarrassing Oscar winner ever, uh, or at least in the, in the last 20 years, 25 years. Uh, which no one looks back on fondly at all. Um, it's the writing of this film that's so bad. The story is very, very weak. After a lot of legal shenanigans, they managed to settle a very old court case going back to the early 1960s when Eon Productions, um, that's Broccoli's gang, uh, the Albert Broccoli, the longtime producer of the Bond movies through his company Eon Productions, um, had a, a long-running legal dispute, and so did Ian Fleming, over the movie Thunderball, which was um, based on a, a treatment that he and a few other guys put together to make a film before they'd made any Bond films. And when he wrote a book called Thunderball that was based on the same story, they sued him because they said these ideas are part ours. And for a very long time they weren't allowed to use some of the elements from that book, which included Blofeld and uh, it included the whole Spectre organisation. And that's what led to the Sean Connery non-canon film Never Say Never Again, which was the only one of the major films not produced by Eon Productions. Um, and that focused on the Thunderball story again, like the movie Thunderball. Um, so... They settled that case a few years ago, and Spectre is about the organisation. Spectre, Ernest Blofeld, being the archetypal villain of the whole Bond universe, and Spectre being this um, clandestine organisation 
that has enormous power and controls politics and economics, billions of dollars, you know, space stations and the like, uh, that returned and that should have been an, an amazing return to the Bond franchise and it wasn't. Uh, it became a very sort of um, drifty film where they spent about $300 million and it shows just moving from one high-end location to another. And if you ever wanted a modern actor to play Blofeld, it would be Christopher Waltz. And he is terrible. He's one of the worst Bond villains ever. The writing throughout is awful. Um, it's a very trite and simplistic plot. Um, none of the things that happen that are major things are credible. Uh, it, it, it invokes incredulity all the time. And things happen so simplistically and stupidly. Um, he, when he first defeats Blofeld, towards the last third of the film, he's, he gets out of the situation so easily, then just walks out the door, fires his gun at something and blows up this enormous facility that's apparently you know one of the most high-tech and secure facilities on earth and he just destroys it with one gunshot and there's a helicopter waiting and he just gets in it and flies away and it's like that all the way through um the way that they get the um bond girl who's very anemic as well she's not interesting um madeline swan who's leia sadu i've not been impressed by her in the film she's been in so far she cropped up in mission impossible She's just not that interesting and she's not very dynamic. And I didn't go for their whole relationship. They tried to invoke a love story like Casino Royale and she just isn't up to it and he wasn't up to it and they've got no chemistry. And we were asked to buy in that he again for the 50th time quits being a Secret Service agent and runs off with her. And we didn't because it, it was just so tepid. But she walks off and gets captured at like towards the end and ends up being tied to a chair while they're going to blow up the MI5 building. It's like a series of people wrote down things on napkins that they imagined happened in Bond films and they strung it together in a movie. Nothing hits home at all. It's uh, incredibly dull. It's very two and a half hours long without having much plot to get there. Um, nothing is believable or credible and <clears throat> it's, it's hung on this human relationship which doesn't work at all. So Spectre is my worst Bond film, and I think that is because the Craig era has produced quality Bond that's been more dynamic, more full of human emotion than the previous ones, and with very high production values, which are hallmarks of Bond films, but even more so in the Craig era, and having someone that's acted in the role as an actual actor instead of you know sleepwalking like the worst Roger Moore films. To turn in something that was so dull is... Um, unforgivable i think the other ones that are uh, the next two that are along i didn't expect to be good anyway but this i expected to really be something so it let everyone down uh the villain should have been the best foreign villain ever with christopher waltz a brilliant oscar-winning actor and he's uh, the whole notion of of making this about him rejecting bond as a child and taking the super villainy back to Bond's childhood, it retrofits, and I hate retrofitting, it retrofits the three previous Daniel Craig movies into being under his control, and it didn't earn that. So apparently Casino Royale, Quantum, and Skyfall were all really him behind the scenes, and he didn't earn that privilege by being a really crappy Bond villain. So it just made me more anger 
angry watching it than the other Bond films because it's like he's he's like oh I've really put you through the ringer haven't I and you're like well no you haven't you've just written it down that you did um, and the fact they take it back to his childhood it's like it riffs on Skyfall and Casino Royale so badly by trying to introduce a love affair and his childhood into proceedings but it doesn't earn those stripes in the way that Casino Royale or Skyfall did and that's what pisses me off it's so retrofitted and it's it's like you watch three Star Wars movies and then you get to the last Jed, uh, sorry, the um, Rise of Skywalker, and they decide all of the plot that you've just seen actually was because of all of the things in this movie, and that caused a lot of problems with people that were fans of the Star Wars franchise. For me, this caused a lot of problems for people that were fans of James Bond. It changed the, the main villain of the Bond franchise into being a completely different character. And it completely changed the context of the previous three movies whilst being the worst of the bunch by miles. So my worst Bond film, uh, 4 out of 10, is Spectre. At number 24, Die Another Day. Not got a lot of time for the Pierce Brosnan era. Pierce, <coughs> Pierce Brosnan could have been a brilliant James Bond, but that should have been in 1972 when Roger Moore took over because they brought that kind of Bond back. Um, the... I watching them in order I've got so much more respect now for the Timothy Dalton Bond films and it feels like they tried Daniel Craig with Timothy Dalton making them edgier grittier harder making him less silly jokey Bond and more hard killer Bond but also someone with genuine emotions and someone that actually could Timothy Dalton was a really strong stage actor um, and then it's like those films were deemed not quite there uh, and then there was a big legal wrangle that went on for about five years and they came back with Pierce Brosnan and it's like they went all the way back to the start of the Roger Moore films everything was so much more superficial Pierce Brosnan could have been a great Bond um, but he just is on paper he's they they made him Remington Steel um, it feels like there's no stakes in any of his films it's all a bit um, it lacks blood and it's um not sanguine as a Daniel Craig era or the Timothy Dalton era. It's like a step back into the past when it was all a bit frippery and around the edges and a bit superficial and didn't mean anything. And Die Another Day was probably the most anonymous of those films. Amazingly, Lee Tamahori directed it. The guy that did Once Were Warriors. And you can't tell that at all. But it's um, famously comes bottom of most Bond lists because it is... Um, so based in CGI, uh, and I don't like Toby Stevens. I don't like him as the um, bad guy at all, and I don't like Halle Berry. They turn up in my list of shame. Halle Berry basically kills the movie dead the second she walks on screen. Her acting is awful. Um, so I'm going to give that a 4 out of 10. It's all ice palaces, and it's all um, asking you to believe things that just aren't credible. Toby Stevens says that he bases himself, because he's had DNA re, uh, replacement, he bases himself on Bond. And you're supposed to recognise that, but you don't. You recognise this really obnoxious posh twat. Um, so it doesn't come off very well. And at number 23, my uh, lowest-ranked Bond films, all four out of ten, Octopussy. Uh, one of the strangest Bond films. There have been a f quite a few Bond films that are very messy. Uh, they just go on from place to place, and the screenplay doesn't hang together and there's no coherency, and it becomes messier and messier as it goes along. 
The bottom line of um, Octopussy of having uh, a nuclear bomb set off by a random Russian general in an American Air Force base in Germany so that Europe would turn against nuclear weaponry at the height of the CND nuclear protests and therefore remove nuclear weapons from Europe is a brilliant one. But it only fractionally appears in the film uh, towards the end. And it has the worst moment in Bond history, which is um, Bond dressed up in a gorilla suit, hiding in a train car, and then he dresses up as a clown. And he's trying to convince the head of the CIA, dressed in clown makeup and disarms a nuclear bomb dressed in clown makeup. It's like the person who came up with that idea generally hates James Bond. And it's got one of the worst ever acting performances in Stephen Burkhoff's uh, Toby, uh, Stephen Burkhoff's uh, General Orlov, who is just so overacting it is appalling. Um, and the character of Octopussy is famously uh, a bizarre one and a totally. I mean, we've got Pussy Galore, a name so rank that um, Austin Powers had to go with the name A Lot of Vagina for one of their characters because Pussy Galore had already gone there. But Octopussy, it's creepy as hell. And she says at one point she's called that because that was her dad's pet name for her and that was like alarm sirens going off. And Maud Adams is pretty average as the chick, so 4 out of 10. So that's the bottom three worst Bond films in order of worseness. Spectre, Die Another Day, and Octopussy. And the number 14 theme is The Man with the Golden Gun, which is on the list because it's so bad it's good. It's just a terrible, terrible song with some amazingly bad lyrics, but I like its kooky 60s vibe from Lulu. We're up to number 22. So still in the very, very poor bracket. Diamonds Are Forever was in the middle of a very poor period uh, where Bond nearly ended. Um, they had a series of four films where they had a different Bond in each film. And Diamonds Are Forever was after, I'm gonna forget his name, all the way through, the Aussie guy. How can I keep forgetting him? George Lazenby, again, I forgot his name. He, um, he only did one film and they lured, a, I think, a near record acting paycheck at Sean Connery to come back for Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, it's a very tepid film. It, it's, just, it's just about diamond smugglers. There's not much else to it. Um, Jill St. John isn't too shabby as the Bond girl. I kind of like her. She was, um, she's obviously got the hot bod and everything else, but she was actually a comedic actress of some standing uh, working with people like Bob Hope and uh, very famous American uh, comedic talents from the 60s. So she she had a lot more to bring to the table, but it's just a really silly film and, and Sean Connery just sleepwalks through it. A lot of people give credit for the uh, silly Bond with um, Roger Moore, but actually Sean Connery did do a very jokey Bond towards the end. And I kind of think that he's responsible for birthing the less killy bond and the sillier bond i put that at sean connery uh, but there's nothing really to say about diamonds are forever it happens in las vegas and it's got like local mobsters 
and there's not just not anything to the film at all it's quite boring it's long for no reason uh four out four and a half out of ten and we're up to 21 the world is not enough pierce brosnan uh, another not particularly great bomb film from him another one that's a bit of a mess it doesn't really mean anything or go anywhere it has uh two very strong villains and that's sophie marceau as electra king she's magnificent and she plays um the bond girl who's actually a villain in disguise and she is with robert carlyle as reynard and he's um uh, like this international terrorist that kidnapped her when she was younger and tortured her and, and put her on this path not quite as we find out that's the only interesting part of the movie um the rest of it is just um, very confusing, very messy plot, doesn't make any sense, and you just wonder what's going on by the end. And it also features the notorious performance of Dennis R Denise Richards as Christmas Jones, one of the worst acting performances in any Bond. At 20, Roger Moore makes his debut here uh, with still really bad Bond films, Moonraker. Um, there are times in the 70s when Bond jumped on the bandwagon of whatever was popular. So Bruce Lee movies and black exploitation movies and after Star Wars came Moonraker. Uh, and if that wasn't enough to hammer home the point, the lead henchman in the film was called Jaws. Uh, it was just after the movie Jaws. Um, there are positives about this film. I thought that Michael Lunsdale was excellent as the villain Hugo Drax and uh, Richard Creel as Jaws was one of the most iconic henchmen. Um, Lois Chillis as Dr. Goodhead was incredibly anemic as the uh, lead Bond girl. She doesn't act at all. And the whole thing ends up in space with people firing laser beams around. There are, however, some iconic sequences, um, such as the cable car fight with Jaws, which is really iconic. And these, like a lot of these films, having watched them when I was a kid on TV, I didn't realise how beautiful the cinematography was and watching them on widescreen for the first time, the cinematography in a lot of these Bond films is off the charts, particularly the way they frame country estates and regal rooms that they hang out in. And the cinematography in Moonraker is fantastic, but five out, of, five and a half out of ten. At number 19, View to a Kill, uh, like Moonraker, it's a terrible film almost, but has some hugely redeeming features. There are only two really good Roger Moore James Bond films, and this isn't one of them. This was the final one he was in, and it all gets a bit silly. It's about drowning Silicon Valley for some reason uh, so that the villain can take over manufacturing microchips. Um, on the plus side, we get the villain, uh, played by Christopher Walken, and the henchman is a Bond girl, uh, played by Grace Jones, and that's a similar dynamic to the Never Say Never Again movie where we get this really neurotic, wired villain called Max Zorin, played by Christopher Walken, who's superb, and a really batshit crazy henchwoman played by Grace Jones called Mayday. And they're absolutely brilliant. And the uh, locations like the Golden Gate Bridge and the Eiffel Tower where Grace Jones jumps off the top and parachutes is absolutely superb. But the whole film doesn't hang together and it's saddled with um, Tanya Roberts as probably the worst performance in a Bond film, including Denise Richards. She cannot act at all and she's embarrassing when she talks. Uh, so we're up to 1985 with that one. Back to Roger Moore, 
in the 70s when the films were flatlining uh, and The Man with the Golden Gun um, at number 18 in my countdown of Bonds. This is the Bond special and I'll be doing Bond villains and Bond girls as well, hopefully. I'm looking at the clock and counting down the Bond themes. But we're up to number 18, the 18th best Bond film, Man with a Golden Gun. Guy Hamilton directed tons of Bond films of varying quality. Uh, the real sadness about this film is it has one of the best Bond villains of all time, Christopher Lee as Scaramanga, the Man with a Golden Gun, is absolutely magnificent. And not for the last time, he is a counterpoint to Bond. He sees himself as Bond, and he's just a little bit classier than Bond himself. He goes for the suits, he's the best at what he does, and he knows he, he wants to fight Bond just to fight someone he's equal because he's in this sort of uh, ennui of life where no one's as good as him, so he wants to challenge himself. He regularly fights other hitmen in his island lair, but there's a lot of crap. Uh, the screenplay does nothing at all. It's a mess. Um, it throws in um, Bruce Lee wannabe moments. And it has in Britt Eklund one of the most annoying Bond girls ever. She's completely, continually uh, stupid. Like possibly the most stupid Bond girl of all. And she continually does things that get Bond into trouble and put the world at risk. And it's all played off as goofy. She does, however, look absolutely amazing in a bikini, which would look great today. But Man with a Golden Gun, 6 out of 10. And I'll do one more. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Pierce Brosnan didn't have a good run in my eyes. Um, this one had a much more interesting plot, which was about a Rupert Murdoch-style character actually going out and creating the news. So he creates this international incident between the British Navy and the Chinese Navy off the coast of China in order to be on the ground with his cable news network and all of that side of it is very prescient and very good but he plays it a bit camp uh, and a bit over the top um, and it's uh, it's probably it's 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 reasonably well structured it doesn't have a lot of the mess of the other films and Michelle Yeoh as Wai Lin is a is one of the most kick-ass Bond girls she's really really good as another agent um, so it's okay. It descends into farcical mess a bit towards the end, which are, most of them do. Um, but it's an okay effort. Six and a half out of ten. And I'll play the number 13 best Bond track. And it's from Goldeneye from Tina Turner. And cleverly, they don't fully ape Sheena, uh, Shirley Bassey. They go for a sort of quieter version to good effect. That's Gold Knight 13 at number 16 in my countdown of Bond themes films. I'm trying to get as many on the board as possible and then dipping off into a couple of the other things that I'm looking at. Quantum of Solace, a film I've got a lot of time for. It got a bit trashed on release for not being as good as Casino Royale. It did a number of really interesting things. Uh, the main one was it was the first Bond film to literally carry on its story from the last one, Casino Royale, and featured Bond as uh, being completely distraught about the death of Eva Green, particularly as she'd uh, done the dirty on him and he couldn't get past that. Um, he, and he eventually sort of comes to terms with the fact that she didn't have a choice, that she was manipulated and she was really looking out for him. Um, but the whole th thesis of it was that it, it's what turned him into a cold-blooded killer 
that he couldn't trust this woman he'd opened his heart to. They did a similar thing with uh, the follow-up to Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, You Only Live Twice, and that was appalling. They basically walked on screen, killed Blofeld, and that was it. And it was just the worst opening to any Bond film. Uh, so Quantum of Solace uh, got some stick, and I understand why. It's got a very messy screenplay, and it disintegrates as it goes along. Uh, the whole idea of um, Bolivian water rights was a really interesting politicised one. Um, and the notion of, you know, the American government overthrowing these Latin American countries, they should have really hammered home the political slant of the movie, but they didn't. And um, the, sometimes the Bond movies struggle if you can't really see what they're doing. Uh, and the idea of them having water rights in some future government uh, became an abstract notion. Um, I really, really liked Olga Kurilenko. I love her as an actress uh, in everything I've seen her in. And she was so much better and sanguine and dynamic than Leia Sado was in Spectre. Uh, and she always features near the bottom of the best Bond girls list. And I totally disagree. I loved her character in the fact that she was on her own revenge mission. Both Bond and her were both on revenge missions of their own. And um, I thought her character was excellent. And they have a platonic relationship again. He doesn't bed her. And I think the Bond films are, are, are usually as good as the amount of women he beds. And if he doesn't bed women every five minutes, it's usually a better film. Uh, the stronger a relationship he has with one female, even if they're not together romantically tends to be the better films um but it lo loses track and there's too much action in it the famed film director uh, film reviewer roger ebert said bond isn't an action hero i totally agree he is uh, the, my favorite part so him standing in a suit having a conversation with the villain where they're both talking about <laughs> the end of the world in a matter of fact and entirely classy manner uh, and that, that's where Bond is for me, and this is definitely the most action-packed and the most violent Bond film. There's too much action in it. Um, the car chase at the start's very good, um, but uh, it, it's better on a human level, and uh, they reintroduce one of the characters from Casino Royale. That's quite good, and when he talks about you know how he's upset about the whole Eva Green scenario, those are the film's strong points. Um, it just gets all a bit messy and bogged down. And Matteo Americ as Dominic Green, he's a reasonable Bond villain, but um, very sort of mid-tempo. So Quantum's probably the third best of the Daniel Craig ones. Olga Kurilenko is uh, one of my, I think, most underrated Bond girls. But I'll give that a 6.5 out of 10. Into the sevens. And after this, I'll probably move on to uh, something else. Never Say Never Again at number 15 with Sean Connery and probably the most acclaimed film director, Irving Kirshner, um, directed a lot of very arty films in the 60s and 70s, lots of cutting-edge and kitchen-sink low-budget films, and ended up, for unbelievable reasons, directing Empire Strikes Back. I don't understand that at all. And he ended up doing a bomb film. It's like um, John Cassavetes doing a bomb film. It's just bizarre. But... Um, what I will say about this, it has some brilliant elements, like the um, A View to a Kill. It's got a slightly better version of Christopher Walken and Grace Jones. Klaus Meyer Brandau as Largo is brilliant as a villain, a neurotic ball of a man who is um, narcissistic, yet also com 
A true narcissist doesn't have to love himself. A true narcissist is just obsessed by himself. He's obsessed by himself, but also deeply, deeply critical of himself. And he's brilliant. And he's offsider. Barbara Carrera as Fatima Blush. Brilliant name. Outdoes Grace Jones's May Day by a mile. She's completely insane. And it's hard to make a performance like that not be cartoonish. But she is just brilliant. Uh, one of the best ever Bond creations. And when she comes to kill Bond by shooting him between the legs... She becomes delirious with uh, Bond trying to fake her out by saying she's the, the finest he's ever uh, encountered as far as hit women go. Um, so she actually makes him write it down on a piece of paper so she can keep it with her. She's nuts. And she obviously doesn't know Q because she don't ask James Bond to get out a pen. Uh, so never say never again. It fails because it's got a very drifty middle and the plot's indistinct. It's a remake of Thunderball. Uh, similar accusations could be le leveled at that film. So the good parts about it, I mean, the bon the other Bond girl, Kim Bassinger, is is really quite good as well. Um, and the whole idea about stealing nuclear warheads is quite good. But the whole midsection of the movie is pretty dire. It's even got Rowan Atkinson in it. It's got like really strong people all the way through. But maybe for an hour in the middle, it's very indistinct. Um, it just kind of exists until you get to the sort of nitty gritty at the end. So it was a misfire for me. Seven out of ten. And I'll play some more music or I'll run out of time. And I'll come back with Best Bond Villains. At 12, one of the only other modern Bond films. There's not been a classic Bond theme since 1985 with uh, A View to a Kill. But this was an averagely good one, garbage, and the world is not enough, yet another Brosnan. Yo, it's Julian on the brown out on Radio Northern Beaches doing the James Bond special, counting down every film in order of greatness. The top 15 theme tunes and the best and worst Bond girls and Bond villains and R.I.P. to Honor Blackman who died today. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because they showed every single Bond film in order up until the Daniel Craig era every night on TV. So I got into it. Change of pace now. I'm going to go into my worst five villains. Play a track and come back. So, the worst Bond villains of all. At number five, it's um, Javier Bardem as Raul Silver in Skyfall. And I'm, it's a double-edged sword here. He hams it up so much. Uh, and it's a bit over-egged. But next to virtually the same character in Spectre, I mean, if you look at those two characters, one's got mummy issues with them and uh, Christopher Waltz has daddy issues with Bond. It's a bit crap for back-to-back -back films. But um, he has his plus points. At number four, where's Bond villains? Donald Pleasance as Blofeld. Blofeld is a really interesting character. He should be the greatest Bond villain of all, and everyone they've cast on paper should have been great, but hasn't. Telly Savalas was just anonymous as, as Blofeld. He, he brought none of that... Uh, charisma to the screen at all and um, Christopher Waltz as well Blofeld's really been hard done by Don Donald Pleasance plays it far too close to the Austin Powers movies 
Uh, he's basically mini-me. He's too small uh, and he's in too little of the film. So when he turns up at the end, it's just a bit laughable. At number three, uh, Stephen Burkhoff is General Orlov. Uh, one of the worst male acting performances. He's a very famous stage actor and playwright and a very powerhouse actor, uh, known for shouting and screaming and swearing in his plays. And he just did it for the paycheck and admitted that and just does tantrum. Uh, and he's cringeable from the first moment he's on screen. Uh, number two in my worst Bond villain, Spectre. Sadly, Christopher Waltz is one of my favourite actors in the world and should have been the best Blofeld and best Bomberland ever. But he plays it like a naughty schoolboy. They rehashed the whole mummy and daddy issue thing from Skyfall, which wasn't a really good one, but it worked with Javier Bardem and uh, M. But this time around, retrofitting it back to being about Bond's childhood just didn't work. But Christopher Waltz is just so silly in it. And he keeps saying, oh, he's, he's very similar to the Austin Powers where he sort of puts his finger in, in his mouth and says, oh, I'm a naughty boy. Uh, really terrible effort, sadly. And number one is Toby Stevens as Gustav Graves in Die Another Day, my least favourite Bond uh, villain of all. And it's not really because he sticks out. He's not very interesting. But he, he says at one point that he, he's basically this North Korean general that's had plastic surgery. And he says he bases his character on Bond. So he's supposed to be this very arrogant guy, you know, British stiff upper lip guy. But he doesn't come across like that. He comes across as a really pampered British school brat, uh, which isn't good to have on screen. He's got these big teeth glaring at you all the time. Uh, and it's a, such a bad film and such a badly written film as well. He's my least favourite Bond villain. Toby Stevens as Gustav Graves at number 11. Getting better in the Bond themes, Rita Coolidge. And from that uh, Thunderball remake, Never Say Never Again. Uh, great MOR ballad, all-time high. At number 11. Getting better, Rita Coolidge at number 11 with all-time high. From Never Say Never Again. Now my top 10 best Bond villains. At number 10, Javier Bardem. Um, he's half terrible, cheesy and overacts and half kind of good. And he it benefits because the whole movie is about him paying back Judy Dench's M for leaving him to get tortured um, and disfigured. In a, it, it Basically, she hands him over to the Chinese authorities. And um, the relationship between the trio of Bond, M, and Javier Bardem's Raul Silva is, is excellent and does float the movie. It's good to have a focus on human relations. At number nine, it's Sophie Marceau as Electra King, um, the daughter of a billionaire who comes to take over his estate. She was kidnapped as a 15-year-old and tortured and raped and everything. And... Um, comes back and he uh, Bond protects her. Um, Electra King is her character from the attentions of this um, Robert Carlyle character, Reynard, as this terrorist that's out to kill her. But as we learn over the course of the movie, things are far from what they seem and she's actually the supervillain and she's really good in the role. It's a badly written film, so she does act clunky at times, but she's still very sort of wistful, and confused and just a, a very magnetic character. I loved her in that film. At number eight, uh, Christopher Walken 
as Max Zorin is magnificent. Really wired, wild character. Really, um, he's basically a, a guy that's been created in a lab by the KGB to be a Superman. Uh, very intelligent and physically strong and all these things. And um, he's just completely mad, but does such a great job of acting it. And number seven, um, Sean Bean. He's a really underrated actor as Alex Trevelyan. He's another one that is basically like the man with a golden gun. He's he's Bond's opposite. He's a double O agent like him, but one that... And this is a great part of the politics of it. It was about the, um, the Cossacks in World War II who were deemed to be on the side of the Nazis because they were against the Russians. And the British government handed them all over, thousands of them at the end of World War II, who were tortured and killed by the Russians. And his parents were part of this. And it's driven him to become this villain. But he's also Bond's equal, and he was a double O agent as well. So he's great. At number six, a most underrated one in the list, Robert Dabby as Franz Sanchez, in probably the most underrated film on the list, He's great. He always turns up as a Colombian drug dealer. But he's great because he has so much time on screen with Bond and they have an actual relationship. And I thought that was a really underrated character. Uh, He's got a lot of class and he's got this air of menace, which you don't get in the Pierce Brosnan films and you didn't get with Christopher Waltz. You know that he's a really bad guy that can do terrible things. And he does so because he knows that will maintain his business. There's a part in it where they talk about just killing the guy that had got him released from jail and not giving him the $2 million. And he turns around and says, no, because I want people out there to know for the next time. You know, they don't want to... People won't help me the next time. He's a very sort of matter of fact about all his killings and dealings, and I loved his character. And number five, Klaus Maria Brandau as Largo does exactly the same thing as Christopher Walken, a bundle ball of nerves and neurosis but does it even better. Truly great performance. And number four, the original Dr. No, the very first Bond film. Joseph Weissman as Dr. No set the template for the evil villain in an evil lair with plans of world domination, and he's one of the creepiest and scariest of all of the characterizations, better than any performance of Blofeld. And number three, we're up to the modern era and the modern classic Casino Royale. Mads Mikkelsen, an actor I love, his Le Chiffre character was brilliant. He plays a card game against Bond that's really the centerpiece of the movie. And the interaction between the two is magnificent. He's a great character because instead of being like this king of the world, evil king of the world, he's actually somebody that has bet all of his clients' money. And these clients are these global terrorists and uh, regimes in Africa with totalitarian dictators. He's bet and lost all their money. And he's desperate. And that's a great driving factor. So he's great. Number three. Number two, it's uh, Christopher Lee as Scaramanga in the terrible film The Man with the Golden Gun. Just a magnificent performance from one of Britain's greatest ever actors. He could have played the character of Bond. So could Sean Bean in a way. But he's the one that would have most likely been cast as Bond back in the early 60s. And he had a strong... In his real life, he was actually a secret... Worked in the Secret Service in World War II. His real life was as James Bond. Um, and he did very well and uh, made a lot of contacts with a lot of very interesting people in the intelligence community. And number one, not a surprise, beating Christopher Lee is Gert Frobe as the titular Goldfinger. A truly magnificent, psychotic man 
um, a, a cheat, a Donald Trump, really. He's, he cheats at golf. He cheats at everything. He's not got a very good temper. And he, I mean, at one stage, he gets all of the mafia from all over America to explain his plan on Fort Knox and then kills them all. And he just does it to show off. He's going to kill them all anyway. He's got no reason to, to walk at length over about 10 minutes through this plan. Brilliant plan. He's, uh, he's got loads of gold, so he plans to irradiate with a nuclear bomb all of the gold in Fort Knox to drive up the price of gold. It's a great madcap plan that you have to be an evil genius to even come up with. And the fact that he's prepared to kill 60,000 American troops as a matter of fact, he is the number one greatest Bond villain, Gert Probe, who was voiced by another actor, believe it or not. I was gutted when I found that out. And again, R.I.P. to Honor Blackman, who's his henchwoman in this film. Uh, into the top ten, and the first of the Queen of Bond films, Shirley Bassey, Undisputed Queen. And her film, uh, Moonraker, was dire. But this is a curious one. It's a much more low-key and modernist-sounding, eerie song, Moonraker, at number ten. I like that chiming in the background. Very uh, chromatics, almost. That's the first entry, but not the last, from Shirley Bassey. You're with Julian on the Brown Note counting, on the Bond special counting down the top 25 Bond films in order, all of them in order. Uh, number, we left you with Never Say Never Again at 15, the non-canon Connery one. At number 14, Live and Let Die, with uh, Roger Moore from 1973, another guy Hamilton film. It's half terrible, yet it's got so many iconic moments in it. Um, it's the black exploitation Bond. It's got the guy with a claw that can cut off Bond's finger. Bond runs across the tops of alligators. It's got Jane Seymour as the impossibly beautiful tarot card reader. It's got lots of iconic moments in it. It's uh, very long and it doesn't always hit home as well as it should do. And the ending is particularly trite. But the whole idea of this guy trying to flood America with free heroin so that he can after that get everyone addicted and corner the market had some strength to it so i thought that was a reasonable effort a seven out of ten at 13 where it all started to go south for sean connery his fourth outing as bond in his initial run his last one and you only live twice a very messy very long film but it still has more of a foot into those classic opening films than what would come with say diamonds are forever um, it's got Donald Pleasance as Blofeld, not a very good character. And Kissy Suzuki is one of the worst Bond girls. Um, but the girl that's the Japanese Bond girl at the start is brilliant. I think she saves Bond's life more than any other character. I can't remember her name. Um, it's very, very long, but it makes use of the Japanese locations without it being a, a slight, an exploitation film like uh, Live and Let Die, I think, or Man with a Golden Gun, where they just went full Bruce Lee. It's actually really interesting in its use of Japanese islands and uh, the internal spaces and the way they're shot. Uh, and I thought, yeah, overall, it's closer to being a classic Bond than the bad ones. So I'm going to give that 7 out of 10. At number 12, Pierce Brosnan's best and first effort, the overrated GoldenEye. Um, it is a really strong film, and it has... A brilliant Bond girl in Famke Jensen. 
and a brilliant Bond villain in Sean Bean and that whole thing works really well but it's, it suffers from the indistinct notion of them having a satellite in space that is going to then um, shut down the London Stock Exchange. You don't see London in the movie so it's all a bit indistinct like I said in earlier ones when you don't really see the impact of what the villain's trying to do and when, when that impact is something that's going to happen in the future that's a bit nebulous in how it's going to pan out. It doesn't make for a very strong theme and it's far too messy and far too padded out. But it's got some really strong sequences. The opening is one of the top two in my eyes uh, where Pierce Brosnan's Bond does, I think at that time, the world record bungee jump off the top of a dam. It looks magnificent. Um, like it's 250 meters or something ridiculous. It looks incredible. And the whole uh, thing at the end in this giant satellite dome uh, on a tropical island is really uh, strong to look at as well. And Frankie Jensen and Sean Bean are brilliant as the evil people. It just has too much padding, but seven out of 10. And I'll come back with number 11 after another Bond theme. The 10 best now. Uh, we're into number nine and one of the only male sung Bond themes, Matt Rumroe from the classic second film from Russia with Love uh, and it's just kind of appealing. From Russia. Did I do 11? No, I didn't. Uh, number 11, Skyfall, another overrated one like uh, Goldeneye. Uh, Sam Mendes as a director I don't have a lot of time for, but they did have a really strong um, theme to it, which is Javier Bardem and him being against Bond and uh, Judi Dench. Judi Dench gives a great performance, and so does Daniel Craig in this film, and it's all based around the three people having this human relationship, uh, which makes it much more sort of interesting and humanly dynamic than world domination. Uh, looks absolutely amazing. One of the best looking Bond films. Roger Deakins' cinematography is Oscar worthy. It's magnificent at times. And even though the last third of it is is really silly, set in the Scottish Highlands in this um, where Bond grew up in this house called Skyfall, um, it looks just amazing. It's so stunning to look at. Um, so it does. It's it's got a lot of padding and uh, it wastes a really good uh, bongo and severin uh, for no reason. Um, but it's got a lot going for it. It's uh, Bernice Marlowe. She's great at severin, and they just kill her, and it's um, annoyingly quick. But Judy Dench is pretty much the bongo in this. So she's she's uh, in a lot of the film. Um, it's, um, it's not as good as it gets made out to be, but it is a really strong effort. And it does have the themes to get there, even if the last third of it is a bit dragged on and a bit silly in the shootout stakes. So Skyfall, seven and a half out of ten, top ten time. The most underrated film for me is Licence to Kill, the second Tim Timothy Dalton film. I it got paid out on for being too violent, too edgy, too dark, and they basically preempted the Daniel Craig era uh, with Timothy Dalton. And the world wasn't ready for it, so they went back to Roger Moore with Pierce Brosnan. Um, this one is Bond on a revenge mission and he's out to get the, the person that murdered Felix Leiter's wife, uh, the CIA guy that's in a lot of films played by different actors, and feeds Felix Leiter to the sharks eating his leg off. He lives but he's lost his leg and his arm. It's pretty grim. 
Um, but I really like the fact that it's focused on virtually a, a very finite environment set on this made-up island that's supposed to be like Cuba uh, with this international drug dealer who's really good character, one of my favourite Bond villains, Robert Davi as Fran Sanchez, and Carrie Lowell as Pam Bouvier and Talisa Soto are really quite strong Bond girls as well. Um, and the fact that they all have a human relationship, both Bond girls, Bond and the villain, all have this interconnected relationships, uh, which makes it a much more human scale Bond movie. And it didn't have too much fat on its bones. And the whole finale uh, with the trucks going down this mountainous road in the middle of the desert is actually really, really strong. And I really liked it. And I liked uh, Timothy Dalton. So I'm going to give License to Kill 8 out of 10. We're into the good movies now. And I'll do the last Timothy Dalton one at number nine, The Living Daylights, uh, his first film where they tried to make it less silly like the Moore ones and bring Bond back to this serious cold-blooded killer. Um, I thought it was a really strong film. It was well-received. And um, even though the villains and the story aren't that much, um, the whole thing is paced really well. Marion Darbo is good as a, a, a Bond girl who gets in the mix and she's in most of the film and she's in most of the fight sequences and battles and all of that. Um, and they make good use of some interesting locations, like where he hooks up with the Mujahideen. Uh, and that's happened in a couple of films, Rambo, where the Mujahideen, who became the Taliban, and uh, Osama bin Laden, and so on, are the heroes. Whoops. Um, but that's it's done really well. Um, it's got a nice use of, um, I think, an Aston Martin in it comes back. Um, and I thought it was a strong film. I love the Timothy Dalton films over the Pierce Brosnan era. Uh, that's an 8 out of 10. More music so I can get through. At number 9, number 8, sorry, it's fittingly the John Barry Orchestra. He made most of the music, and this is the only instrumental one <clears throat> in the whole list, and it's the theme from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. We're up to number eight now. That's the On Her Majesty's Secret Service theme by the John Barry Orchestra. Also at number eight in my themes. And for your eyes only, the second best Roger Moore film at number eight, kind of apes the spy who loved me a bit. He's got um, a plot that revolves around one of the strongest Bond girls, Carol Bouquet as Melina Havelock, who's just so beautiful. And she's, her hair's about 10 feet long, but she starts the film trying to kill a bad guy who has been responsible for her father's death, her, the death of her parents. And she spends the whole movie with Bond um, and she's on a revenge mission and he's a more thoughtful, less silly Bond in this. Uh, it's got some great locations including uh, this clifftop monastery in uh, Greece on the, uh, which is just stunning. Um, and Bond isn't silly. He has a nice conversation with her about how her pursuit of revenge dig two graves because it's not going to end well and it's not going to help you uh, and whenever Bond has a strong relationship with a woman throughout the film they tend to be the better films so for your eyes only really strong effort from him 8 out of 10 at number 7 uh, the initial 3 and well, initial, well this was the 4th Bond film Thunderball it's too long and it's too indistinct in plot but it's still one of the classic 4 opening films Sean Connery is really strong uh, and even though it was the worst of the four films, that still makes it a really good one. And um, everything about it is pretty classy. 
Um, it's it's again like Never Say Never Again, the remake. The middle section of the whole film is a bit indistinct, but it's still very classy. Eight out of ten. At number six, Doctor No, the very first one, uh, which doesn't have all the elements of the Bond films that would come in later films, but as a low-budget film, it's um, it was a phenomenon when it came out um, budget-wise versus box office. It was huge and set the whole ball rolling. It did have a terrific uh, Bond villain in Joseph Weissman as Doctor No and a terrific Bond girl in Ursula Andress who famously walks out of the sea in a white bikini with a knife through the uh, through her bikini bottom, uh, one of the most iconic shots in Bond history, and uh, it's just um, it's it's got a little bit more of a low budget dynamism to it. So Doctor No, eight out of ten, and music wise, everything's great from now on in. And Shirley Bassey, her second best Bond theme from a terrible film. And I will keep the top five by going back into my, this time, Bond girls. The Bond girl is a hugely disparate bunch. They can be a floozy that Bond beds, usually in the worst Bond films, and then usually gets killed straight away. Or they can be uh, an agent that is with him for the entire movie, and they can be a floozy that jumps into bed with him and immediately dies, or they can be one of the main characters. Or they can be Eva Green, and be this huge love interest or they can be one of the henchmen as well so it's a really wide bunch the five worst at number five Britt Eklund is just the stupidest she continually does things that put everyone in danger bumps into things with her bum perfect bum but bumps into things and sets off alarms and oh, just a really annoying character Hayley Berry I thought was terrible in Die Another Day um, she gets out of the sea in her bikini and as soon as she starts talking it's just like the whole film tanks really crap as Brit, uh, Jinx didn't like her character at number 3 Denise Richards is famously awful as Christmas Jones I want to give her some credit um, the film's so badly written that all she gets to say is expositional dialogue saying oh so you're doing this because this is happening and that's virtually all of her dialogue and of course she is not very convincing as a scientist um, but she still acts atrociously. At number two, Kissy Suzuki is nowhere near as good as the Japanese actress in the first half of the film, I can't remember. She's the most um, supplicant of all Bond girls. She just basically is James Bond's fake wife and does nothing except walk alongside him in a bikini and then go and get help. Really crap. At number one, the worst ever is very much like Denise Richards, a very unconvincing uh, academic and that's Tanya Roberts who gives a performance so bad it should never have been allowed in a major film and every time she speaks it's funny because she just can't act there's no chemistry and I think her performance is considerably worse than Denise Richards so the worst Bond girl of all time Tanya Roberts and we're up to number six beautiful song from a great Bond film like I said, there's a correlation between the Bond theme being good and the Bond villain and Bond girl being good and the movie being good. And this is certainly the case for your eyes only. Sheena Easton became the only singer of a Bond theme to be one of the girls featured in the opening sequence. And this is a great track. 
It's got a great vocal performance and I love the space in the production. For your eyes only, Sheena Easton at number six in the Bond themes. And we're counting down the top best Bond girls at number 10, RIP to Honor Blackman as the most famous name in the list, Pussy Galore. Uh, she's kick-ass and very good, though has a troubling relationship with Bond, uh, which could be called rape in the modern era, I believe. Or Yeah, it's, it's very problematic. And number nine, Asila Andres, is a complicated Bond girl. She comes out of the water in one of the most iconic scenes, but um, is revealed to have been raped in the past and is quite this broken character, but she's really good. Evil Bond girls now at uh, number eight. I didn't have a number eight. I've missed off number eight. Oh, no. At number seven. How did I do that? At number seven, uh, Fanke Jensen as Xenia on the top, the most wild Bond girl of all next to Barbara Carrera. Uh, she is just nuts. She crushes men with her legs and gets orgasmic enjoyment out of it. And she's brilliant. I just loved her. And she has a great death, as does at number six, Barbara Carrera's Fatima Blush even outdoes Fanky Jensen in the insane stakes. Uh, she is somebody that is just in love with murdering people and wild-eyed and manic and one of my favourite Bond performances. Uh, number five, uh, what have we got? Judy Dench is my fifth best Bond girl. She has a great relationship with Daniel Craig throughout the three films she stars in. And she has the strongest turn out of all of the films she's been in. She's been in M, M for, I think, about eight movies, something like that, all the way back to the Pierce Brosnan era. And she brought a lot more uh, sort of emotional range to it, and that's her finest hour. And she dies in it as well. And number four, it's Diana Rigg. Always tops the list as the best ever Bond girl. She marries James Bond. She's a brilliant character. She's a great actress, and at the start we see her running into the sea, and we kind of know she's trying to commit suicide. Um, it's everything about Honor Majesty's Secret Service is just to the left of anything that happens in any other Bond film. She usually tops the list. She's a great character, and they have a very convincing relationship with George Lazenby, and the most tragic end of any Bond film. Um, the only reason she isn't topping my list is that she's not in a lot of the film. She goes missing for large parts of the film due to the story. Otherwise, she would be top. But she's brilliant. At number three, For Your Eyes Only, and Carol Bouquet is Melina Havelock. She's, I love her. She, the whole film, It's a very romantic Bond film, and she fits that template. Even though she's so beautiful to look at, she doesn't sort of jump into bed with Bond, and she's got her own mission and she's trying to kill the avenge her parents' death. And I really liked her character. At number two, Eva Green in Casino Royale has this incredibly strong relationship with Daniel Craig. Uh, the film was a phenomenon, phenomenon when it came out. And it set the whole Daniel Craig era off with uh, as big a bang as you could possibly imagine. And she was great as a character that w eventually warms to him. But then we find out is actually been working for the opposition in and that breaks bond and creates this cold-blooded killer out of him when he can't get over the fact that he's quit everything and gone off to be with her but she's actually working for the opposition brilliant performance by eva green as vespalind one of the most loved of all at number one it's barbara back as anya amasoba in the spy who loved me she is absolutely magnificent she's in the entire movie and she straddles this area where she's 
one of the most feminine and beautiful Bond girls, yet also an agent. And she manages to be kick-ass, but very feminine and dress in these amazing dresses, and yet still be this really hard-ass uh, KGB agent that's paired with James Bond. And it's also got a great story. It's the best Roger Moore one, where Roger Moore, in the opening, kills her lover, and she gets paired up with Bond. And we all know that Bond has killed her lover, but she doesn't find out until about halfway through the film. So it, it's a really good plot device that hangs over the movie. And she just has this amazing face. No one's ever looked more like a KGB agent femme fatale than Barbara Back. And she lost the role for um, Charlie's Angels because of the fact that she didn't look American enough. Born and bred in Queens in New York. <laughs> but she just looks like a KGB agent. And I loved her performance and the fact that she was so interesting as a bond girl um she does it all and i she's my number one and looking at the time at number five one of the most sampled bond themes from nancy sinatra you'll recognize this uh, you only live twice Now, wouldn't she have made a superb Bond girl? How did she not get a Bond girl role, considering her father was uh, notoriously good at getting film roles? Nancy Sinatra, and You Only Live Twice. So I've got four more songs, and five more films to get through. At number five in my countdown of the best Bond films of all, or all of the Bond films ranked in order and rated, from Russia with Love, the second Bond film, a terrific Sean Connery effort, a uh, good balance between his um, loose charm and the fact that um, he it wasn't silly. It had that it had, still had a seriousness to it. Everything about it was classy, particularly the two villains, Robert Shaw, who starts as this Teutonic mountain of a man who uh, uh, Lotte Lenya punches in the stomach with a knuckle duster. And when he starts talking, and it's in this very affable, posh English accent, it's just quite the moment, because you expect him to be this Russian agent. But he's obviously not in real life. He's, he's British, but he's superb. And um, the fight that he has with Sean Connery on the train is one of the most iconic fight sequences, if not the most iconic. And Lotta Lenya, as the diminutive KGB agent, or they're actually not KGB, they're Spectre. They're, they work for Spectre. She's got the pointy shoe with the knife that comes out at the end, and she's just flat-out evil. Um, everything about it is quality. Um, the plot, which is, I think, getting a, a Russian device, a uh, code-breaking device, it's a MacGuffin, uh, like a Hitchcock movie. It doesn't really mean anything, but the whole film is class. At number four on Her Majesty's Secret Service, George Lazenby's only outing as Bond. He quit. In the, he's got the worst agent in movie history who told him Bond isn't going to be around anymore dude, the swinging 60s are happening he's an anachronism give up, go on to better things what a moron uh, and George Lazenby never recovered his career never recovered from that and he never did anything remotely close to that level again he gets a lot of stick for being the worst Bond but he's also in the most interesting film as most of it is based around his relationship with Diana Rigg it's the Bond movie where he falls in love and marries 
and uh, a lot about this film is different. It, it was the first time we didn't see Roger, uh, uh, Sean Connery as Bond, and it didn't get the acclaim it deserved on release, but has subsequently become one of the best-loved Bond films because of that human emotional element. Um, and um, the side with the Telly Savalas as Blofeld isn't as interesting as the relationship with Diana Rigg, which carries a real emotional punch. Uh, there's a bit where he gets rescued at the ice rink by Diana Riggs' character. And he's, I mean, you've never seen Bond that scared. And he just says, they're after me. And he looks like he's terrified. And it has the hardest end of any Bond film. And one of the most heartbreaking in movie history, uh, where Bond marries Diana Rigg and drives off into the sunset. And that's the last shot. He pulls by the side of the road and then Telly Savalas pulls up beside him and and uh, her, his female henchman machine guns their car. And the very final scene is is a, a totally distraught George Lazenby cradling Diana Rigg in his arms, who's just died. And the police pull up and he just says, oh, she's just having a rest. And it's just cuts. It's the most bleak and heartbreaking ending and one of the most human bomb films. And I'll get through uh, number four. Paul McCartney and Wings and uh, Live and Let Die. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say live and let live That bridges the gap between, I think, the Beatles and Electric Light Orchestra at the end of the 70s and remains the only reason for Wings' existence. And that's my fourth best Bond theme tune. Movie at number three, it's Daniel Craig's debut and what a brilliant classy Bond film Casino Royale was. It had so much that was near the top of the tree. Vesper Lynn, uh, Eva Green's performance as a Bond girl was magnificent. Mads Mikkelsen was great as Le Chiffre. The only reason it's not top is it's too long and it gets bogged down a little bit. And like The Dark Knight, it has too many endings it's it's it sort of drags on the endings too much i wish they carried on into quantum of solace with the sort of like some of the back third of of casino royale um but the rest of it is really good it pl uh, deposits this card game uh at the center which is um a great battle off between bond and his arch nemesis in this film everything about its high caliber the cinematography and Daniel Craig was superb as Bond. So that's my third best Bond film, a 9 out of 10. Every film from now gets a 9 out of 10. And, um, yeah, that's one of the most recent entries. At number three, uh, probably the most iconic Bond theme of all from the most iconic Bond film. And the only reason it's not top is there's not much to it bar the opening blast, but it's still probably the best use of brass in popular music. Some lungs on her. The third entry from Shirley Bassey, the Queen of Bond, and Goldfinger, and for the next two, it's kind of ironic. And it's not by design. My second favorite Bond film is Goldfinger. The third entry, and the one that really set the franchise in stone. A lot of people don't realize how successful Bond movies were in the 
60s. Uh, Goldfinger was a phenomenon. So were the first two, but Goldfinger was really off the charts. Uh, it cost, I think, an, the equivalent of $25 million today, and it made the equivalent of $1 billion at the box office. When you think about the Avengers movies and the fact that they cost $250 million to make and have $100 million spent on marketing, and they have to make about $500 million to break even. Think about Goldfinger cost $25 million in today's money and made a billion dollars at the box office. And most of those films from that era were just phenomenal box office successes. That won't happen now. They spend a fortune on Bond movies. But they uh, were keeping cinemas open 24 hours a day in Times Square to show these films. Uh, it has everything near the top. It's got the best villain in Gert Frobe's Goldfinger. One of the best Bond girls in R.I.P. Honor Blackman, who passed away today, age 94. He's got the best car in the Aston Martin uh, DB5, which has never been bettered. And Bond drove off in at the end of Spectre. And um, everything about it is sheer class. Sean Connery's at his best in it. Uh, Odd Job is the best um, henchman. Um, the only reason it's not top is one. It hasn't got the human element of, a, of some of the others. There's not really human element to this film. Even though everything's iconic and classic, there's no real relationships. And number two, Bond's hit list in this film is appalling. This is Bond's performance. He meets and seduces this poor girl and gets her killed while he's in the room. And she gets painted from head to toe in gold, the most iconic death of Bond. Her sister tries to avenge her death, so Bond rescues her and gets her killed. Uh, another brilliant death by Oddjob's flying uh, steel-rimmed hat, which is a brilliant device to murder people with. And then he gets captured for the entirety of the rest of the movie and kind of rapes on a Blackman's character in order to convince her to join the good guys, and he doesn't even help stop uh, Goldfinger's plan at all. He sort of fumbles around trying to turn off this bomb and someone else comes and does it for him. He does nothing. He's, he's like captive this whole movie. But everything about it is sheer class and everything is just works. Everything is, is memorable uh, from the, do, I, do you expect me to talk, Goldfinger? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die, as he's got a laser beam edging his way up to those famous private parts. So it's a brilliant film, but it, Bond's performance is not good. And also, it, it doesn't have the strength of the human relationships of something like Casino Royale. My second favourite Bond theme from the best singles band of the 80s, they drunkenly got into a very good relationship with John Barry, and their theme music is featured in orchestral mode throughout the film, uh, and it's one of the most dramatic of all Bond film, uh, themes. It's Duran Duran and A View to a Kill. At number two, I won't do any countdowns, maybe for the movies. That's what you need if you're doing a Bond theme. I mean, look at Sam Smith and Billie Eilish. You're doing a Bond theme, go nuts. Go absolutely insane. That's the number two Bond theme. A View to a Kill from Duran Duran. Absolutely magnificent. I won't do any countdowns. My number one greatest Bond film of all time came at a period of 10 years of really diminishing returns. 
They had a period of four different Bonds in four movies and then the opening Roger Moore films were pretty dire and Goldfinger, uh, Man with a Golden Gun could have ended it for them because the uh, box office was down, the costs were up, people were starting to lose interest and there was a lot of production problems in making the f- number one film, The Spy Who Loved Me. And it came out and it was a revelation. Gone was a stupid Roger Moore and it was a much more thoughtful and a little bit more hard-edged Everything about this film is class that rivals Goldfinger. It's got the best opening sequence of any Bond film and possibly the best stunt in movie history where he skis down this hill, a massive mountainside, and then uh, he's got nowhere to go. The villains are firing guns at him and he just goes off the cliff. And you can see that it's really happening. He just goes off this cliff that's thousands of feet up in the air. And you watch him tumbling in complete silence and shock. And the skis come off. And this parachute opens, and it's a Union Jack parachute. And apparently when they showed it at the premiere, Prince Charles stood up and the whole cinema stood up. It's the most brilliant opening sequence. And just to do that as a stuntman, you're crazy. You got 30 grand for doing that. And then it has what will be my number one Bond theme. And immediately, within five minutes of the film starting, like the opening 15 is just classic, we get uh, Barbara Backer's Anya... Amosova is she's the first character on screen and in a very thoughtful moment with the, like they humanize the Russians in the bomb film so well uh, which you don't expect she's told um, that she's to join up with Bond in a joint operation with the British Secret Service and she's also told that her lover has just died and he's quite thoughtful in the way that he consoles her and she's like I don't care I'm doing my job and we all know that Bond's killed him and she doesn't find out until halfway through the film I won't go into depth about it because I want to play the theme music from this film but everything is quality it's got the second best car in the Lotus Esprit that jumps off a pier and turns into a submarine Um, my favourite Bond girl in Barbara Back my favourite theme tune the best opening and it's got the human element the relationship with Barbara Back that Goldfinger doesn't have Um, everything about it is either in the top three of all Bond films and the plot is great because normally with bomb, uh, bomb films where they have got a bomb to def- they just defuse it and it's very anticlimactic. Here they've got two nuclear submarines. So what do they do? Instead of defusing them, they blow both of them up with nuclear bombs. So you get two nuclear explosions and you get a great fight-off battle sequence, which isn't the normal turgid mess uh, on the on the ship at the end and the standoff with the villain um, played by Kurt Jonsson, uh, Carl Stromberg. And the whole thing's great from start to finish. And I'll end with this, the theme music, my number one Bond theme of all time, Carly Simon, Nobody Does It Better. Adios.